I want to introduce my topic this morning, um, Ecclesia. And if you're new with us, this is going to sound like, wow, this guy's going to preach a whole sermon, then he's going to come back and preach another sermon. This is the first third of it. I'm going to introduce a whole series. I'm going to bounce around just a little bit, um, and then we're going to kind of come back together. Um, so to introduce my topic, Ecclesia, what is it? Um, Jesus had a question on his mind, very important question, um, in, the leaks, we, in the weeks leading up to Jerusalem, right? Do the disciples understand who I am? Because if they don't, they're never going to understand what has to happen and why. What, what's going to happen to me? Not, not just what's going to happen, what has to happen to me and, and why. Because if they don't understand this, they will forever struggle to connect the dots between an ever, never-ending, overpowering, just amazing love of God, right, and, and a Roman crucifixion, right? They'll, they'll never be able to connect those dots, nor will they be able to connect the dots between, right, the, the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of the earth, and the way the kingdoms of this world operate, and the kingdom of God, right? The, the kingdom that Jesus ushered in and expects us to continue to expand. This kingdom of God is radically different than the kingdoms of men, and unless they understand the crucifixion, unless they understand who Jesus Christ is and that he has to be crucified, all of this stuff will make no sense. They will never understand their role as the church afterwards. It just, it just won't make any sense because their Savior will have been crucified and is dead. Everybody would have struggled with that. So he does usher in and he expects and empowers us by the gift of the Holy Spirit to continue to do the work that he started. And so he's going to ask the disciples one afternoon, right? Because he's, he's, he's kind of got to know, do they understand who I am? Then they'll make sense of everything. And so he asks them one day, you know, he gathers all the knuckleheads together and says, hey, you know, who, who do people say I am, right? Because you guys have been struggling for three years now, and I, I, we really need to get this nailed down, right? So they, they start guessing. One of them, you know, John the Baptist. Um, I know Herod was very worried about that one because he's like, I thought I cut the guy's head off. What's he doing back? So Herod's a little freaked out. Um, some of them are saying Elijah because Elijah was supposed to be the forerunner of, of the Messiah. Some of them are saying Jeremiah. There, there's a lot of Jewish literature kind of backing that up, that idea up. Um, so after a few guesses, Peter nails it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And to which Jesus replies this, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Petros, Peter. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, my ecclesia. Now, to say, you know, we, we look at that passage, and, and, and a lot of people look at that passage, and, and they, they kind of arrive at maybe an oversimplification of an idea that, you know, the Catholic Church, they kind of read this passage, and they, they interpret it as uh, Peter would be the first bishop, you know, and on his faith, the, the church in Rome would be built, and, and the whole church that we have today has all been built kind of on Peter. Um, but that really wasn't, that, that, that was where the Catholic Church eventually arrived, but that's really not the options, the interpretive options options that were available at the beginning. A couple different options. Um, people were talking about this, this, this rock, right? What is this rock that Jesus is, is building his ecclesia on? One idea was Jesus himself, the person. And a lot of people, boy, that, that's perfect. That, that fits. Another option, though, is, is, is not the person, but the fact of the person. The fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what we're building the church on, the, the information 
You know, so the first option, we're building it on the person. The second option, we're building it on the information. The third option that's been out there for a long time is, again, that we built the church on the faith of Peter. Right? I want to introduce maybe a fourth possibility. It's kind of a combination, and I, and I think it pulls the important strands together here. Um, think of Peter really as the first person to believe. Right? Basically, Jesus is saying, Peter, you're the first man to grasp who I am. You're therefore the first stone... The foundation stone, I'm putting words into Jesus' mouth here. This is not in Scripture, okay? Just make sure you know that. Um, the very beginning of the church, which I am founding. See, because Peter's not the rock. Throughout Scripture, who's the rock? The Heavenly Father is the rock. I mean, you can find that in about 20, 30, 40, 50 different places. God, the Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father is, is the rock, right? Um, but Peter was the first man on earth to make that leap of faith, and to see that Jesus was, in fact, the son of the living God. In other words, Peter, this isn't in Scripture, but we can, we can kind of play with this idea. Um, Peter was the first member of the church, right? He was the first one to pro- proclaim Jesus Christ, son of the living God. And in that sense, that the whole church is kind of built on him in a, in a sense, Right? And everyone who makes that same discovery is basically another stone added to this building or this idea that we call the church. Unfortunately, this kind of reinforces kind of a short-sighted, a faulty idea of, of a word called the ecclesiology. Take a look at this. Um, from the word, the word for church that we're using, ecclesia, we get the word ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. And unless you're a pastor, you've never had to deal with this idea. You don't need to deal with it. I'm making my board members deal with it because it's the, what are we as the church? What are, what, are we, what are we supposed to be about? What are we supposed to be doing? The church, right? So this is ecclesiology. And again, we get the word ecclesia, ecclesia, uh, del Nazarene, oh, the Nazarene Church, the Spanish Nazarene Church. Um, same idea, all these words come from that. And again, unfortunately, people read our passage and in their mind's eye, uh, Matthew 16, verse 18, they, like they see a building. And in every word I've used so far in this passage leads you to believe this is all about a building. But as best as I can put it, Ecclesia doesn't mean a building. It means really a called out community or gathering of people who happen to meet inside of a building sanctified for holy purposes for the purposes of those called out and who gather in his name, right? So this building is just a place where the church gathers. Literally, it's not the church. It's the church building, all right? We, this, is, this is all old stuff. You guys all are, are aware of this. Um, the most likely Hebrew word, and then, then we're going to close out this uh, introduction, the most likely Hebrew word that Jesus used and that Matthew translates into the Greek is this word for the, the, the gathered people of Israel, halal, k- uh, kahel. And there's about eight different pronunciations for that one, right? I looked them up, and I just chose kahal, right? So what Peter began really was the fellowship of all believers in Jesus Christ. The church Catholic, if I can use that term. It's not the Catholic church. It's the church Catholic, and Catholic meaning all who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, all who gather in his name. We're the church Catholic, the church universal. So what began with Peter was this fellowship of all believers not identified with any particular church and not limited to any particular church. So simple, right? So easy to understand. And then the New Testament writers begin to add to the 
the description, right? I, I kind of feel like in my mind's eye, like we got this simple, really beautiful explanation right here. And then we end up with, check this out. We got about, let me see, about 15, 20 different metaphors that the New Testament writers describe because this, this thing, the church is not easy to pin down. So you see these New Testament writers, they're, they're, they're not grasping. The Holy Spirit is just showing them aspects of what the church should be. We can't take any one of these and say, that's the church. The rest of them are subservient to that one term. These are all beautiful facets of this incredible diamond that we call, this gem that we call the church. So, so this entire message series for the next several weeks, um, Ecclesia, what are we to be as the church? What are we supposed to do? On Sundays, what are we supposed to do with the rest of our week? How important is each vis-a-vis the other? Um, that, that's where we're just going to really dig into that, this idea of, uh, of the church. Um, so we looked at a bunch of ideas of what the church is, lots of them, right? Ecclesia, what, what is it? So throughout his public ministry, Jesus told the disciples, and the crowds, right? That he was going to bring the kingdom of God, bring the kingdom of heaven, right? If you were a Jew, you didn't like hearing the word God, so kingdom of heaven, right? And if you were non-Jewish, you were okay with kingdom of God. Same thing, same idea. Um, he was bringing the kingdom to earth, right? And then just before returning to the Father, he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. And then under the permanent power and guidance of the ever-present Holy Spirit, given his promise on the day of Pentecost, right? The church would be supernaturally equipped to expand God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, here on earth in Christ's place, because he's now at the right hand of the Father. Paul writes it like this. This is in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 18. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you all. Okay, that's, that, that word right there, we're going to translate it, it's all y'all, right? This is not a letter. This is not a statement to an individual. This is a statement to the individuals gathered as the church. So Paul is saying, number one, that you all have a hope as a gathered people, right? You have a hope as individuals, but you have an incredible something beyond, I, I, you know, I'm just going to call it the mystery right now. But when we are gathered, we have a hope that's beyond anything that we could have as individuals, Right? We, we lift each other up. We edify each other. We, we build up each other. So we have a hope to which he has called you all the church. All you all the church. Also, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And what are his holy people? The church. So we have hope. We have riches. And then his incomparably great power for us who believe. And who is it who believes? The church. So we've got, we've, got, we've got hope, we've got riches, and we've got power. It's like, what else do we need? It's like, he's like, here, here's everything. Like, go do something amazing with it. I love it. I love it. I'm going to keep reading. Verses 19 and 20, it said, That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Right? That incomparably great power for us who believe. And then in verse 21, Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. Right? That power is greater than all that. And then 22 and 23, and God placed all those things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. 
A little convoluted grammar there. I'm going to help you out that in just a minute here. But it's important to notice as we're going to explore this in a little bit more detail next week, Jesus brings the kingdom of heaven to earth, right? Mainly because Jesus is the kingdom of heaven on earth, right? He not only proclaims and demonstrates the kingdom of heaven, he embodies the kingdom of heaven. He is the body, the, the kingdom of heaven in, in, in person, right? So it follows, very clearly here, unlike Jesus... The church is not the kingdom of heaven, right? But like Jesus, the church prepares for and anticipates a holy God graciously extending his kingdom here on earth. That, that's our job is to prepare people and anticipate when God breaks into our 2020, 2020 year, he breaks in and graciously does amazing things. That's our, we, we point out and we anticipate and we wait and we, and we tell people, hey, 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 God's going to do something amazing. Watch this, check this out, be a part of it. That's our job is to point toward the kingdom of heaven and point toward Jesus. Maybe it's a little bit easier to understand this translation. I'm going to look at those last two verses in, in Eugene Peterson's, um, what's the version? The message version. It says this. He's in charge of all of it. Remember all those dominions and all those principal, all the powers of earth. He's in charge of all of it, right? And he has the final word on everything. And here's the kicker right here. At the center of all of this, Christ rules his church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church, right? So zero, Paul zeroes in on the, 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 from, from the entire universe, like the cosmos, all the way down to the church universal, the church Catholic. And again, I'm using that term Catholic. I hope you're all catching that term. It's, the, it's all who believe in Christ the Father. It's not the Roman Catholic church. You need to understand that this is the most important gathering of people on the face of the earth. Right? Do you understand that? This is the, I don't care if it's the government of the United States, I don't care anything else. Some of the, some of the people that Mike works for, man, they're like creepy, scary organizations. This organization right here is the greatest power that the world has ever known. Just kind of want to make that statement. Can I get an amen? That works. All right. Ephesians chapter 23, finishing out Eugene Peterson's translation, says the church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. And those two terms, in which and by which, indicate that the church is the conduit. It's, we're, we're not the kingdom of God. We're not the kingdom of heaven. We're not Jesus embodied. We, we struggle. <laughs> and if anyone looked at us and said, you're the kingdom of heaven, they would probably run because the church can be a little bit messed up sometimes, right? We're, we're filled with holy people trying to be holy, but we're still human, right? So anyway, in which and by which, right? The kingdom of heaven spreads, which means that we could read this verse. I'm going to do this very, very carefully. I don't want to be insulting. But we could read this verse. The church is Christ's body in which he, in which he is allowed occasionally to speak and act, by which he is sometimes allowed to fill everything with his presence. He, he depends on the church to spread his kingdom. We're his A plan, right? We're the A team. There was no B team. The church, we're, we're spreading his kingdom. We are the center of the earth. We're not peripheral to the earth. We are the, the dead center. And I know I've asked you guys this in a previous message series we asked, but I'm asking it again. What part is God calling Richland Church of the Nazarene to play that would ensure that Richland Nazarene hears the hope, that they regularly hear about the hope that is in Jesus Christ, or that Richland Washington 
inherits, right, the glorious riches that Jesus distributes through his church. What part is God playing calling Richland Church of the Nazarene to play in which Richland, Washington is regularly filled with his presence, regularly filled with his power, the same power that can bring life to broken and dead dreams of people in Richland, Washington. But here's the problem. You get nine or ten people in a room, <laughs> and I've done this a few times, and it's just sit back and watch the fireworks. Get nine or ten people in a room, how best to do church. So I'm going to give you just an idea, and what I want you to do is I want you to look at these nine options. This is, this, these are called enagrams. Go ahead and hit that next slide there. Um, you all have done uh, personality tests, right? Right? I, I remember the Myers-Briggs. Any of you guys do Myers-Briggs? You got four letters, I-N-T-J-E, J-P-R-S. I can't remember all the letters. I can't remember my four letters. My pastor made me remember them, but then I didn't. Strengths finder, right? You got five strengths, idea, connector, you know, whatever, these kind of things. Temperament test. I end up being a sanguine phlegmatic, which means I jump in wholeheartedly, and then I fade really fast, and I like to have fun. It's really a bad combination, but if you got good people around you, I'm, I'm an okay leader. So, geez. right. So this enneagram thing, though, this is kind of interesting. Oh, oh and the, the temperaments test, I was like the otter, I think. But anyway, the enneagram was just, this was an ancient church idea. I've been reading about it. I've been hearing about it. Maybe you've been hearing about it. And in my mind, I'm like, Scientology? Like, oh, what is this stuff? So I did a little bit of reading, and this is actually the early church fathers. And, and this idea of these nine opposites, uh, like a, a virtue and a vice, Right? And it explains your spiritual world that some of us have strengths that actually, if we're not careful, they can become vices. Right? Every good thing can get in the hands of Satan can be perverted and wrecked. Right? So we got these nine continuums kind of. And out of this actually grew the nine or seven virtues. And if you're Roman Catholic, I, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, it doesn't really matter because we're not Roman Catholic. All right? So... But um, just very quickly, the naturalist. I'm just going to kind of very, very quickly read some descriptions here to help you out uh, decide which you are. The naturalist is those who believers whose hearts best soar toward God when they get outside and they're surrounded by all that he has made, right? There's something about being surrounded by God's creation and the beauty of nature that bends them toward worship and adoration, right? Put these kind of people in a room and tell them to pray with their heads bound and their eyes closed and... That's just not very effective for somebody who's like a naturalist. So I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but you, maybe you know some people who are like this, right? They're already raising their hands. Okay, how about the sensate, right? The best avenues for some believers to communicate with God is the five senses, right? Touch, taste, hearing, seeing, and even smelling, right? Sensates become spiritually attuned when their senses are brought into play. Majestic music, symbolic architecture, outstanding art, sensory experiences of communion are very, very dear to a, a sensate, right? They're, they're very in connection with their, with their feelings, right? Maybe you're one of those. Maybe, maybe you know of somebody else. And then there's the traditionalist, right? These are believers who appreciate the role of ritual, right? They, there's power in reinforced behavior, right? There's something incredibly profound to these people that worshiping God according to set patterns just sets them at peace. I have a very good friend who's my pastor's son, and he has, he's a Nazarene at heart, but he's found a denomination that's very liturgical because he doesn't want to listen to a pastor yabber for half an hour. He, he, he just wants to be in the presence of God. He, he, you know, that speaks to him. Okay, so maybe, maybe you're the traditionalist, right? The, 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 the rhythms of the church is, is your power. Um, 
the ascetic. When you think of an ascetic, think of the monk or the nun. Ascetics meet God internally, right? They don't want the distractions of a museum or a group meeting or Bible studies. They prefer to shut out the rest of the world and meet God in solitude and austerity, right? For them, the best environment for personal worship is silence. The Quakers come to mind, right? You wait on the presence of God. Just be quiet because you're interrupting God. So the aesthetic, right? And then there's the activists. The activists love to meet God in the vortex of confrontation, right? They want to fight God's battles. For them, the church is the primary place to collect signatures and sign up volunteers for the real work of the gospel. They feel most alive spiritually when they are in the midst of God's active and controversial, confrontational work. That's when God seems the most real, the most eminent and the most excited. And there's a caregiver. This is a very easy one. Caregivers love God by loving others. Providing care, meeting needs of Jesus in Jesus' name uh, energizes them and draws them even closer to the Lord. For caregivers, caregiving isn't an obligation as much as a threshold to intimacy with God. If you've ever read uh, Henry Newman's uh, book, he spends several summers in Canada caring for a very, very disabled person, completely disabled. And this book that he writes on how he came to know God by serving somebody that could do nothing on their own. Yeah, go, go check that. That's amazing, amazing. Um, the enthusiasts. Loves the excitement, the celebration of their faith. They tend to be more relational. They love the Bible studies, the group worship. They feed off the excitement of other people, believers praising God. Um, the enthusiasts also reveal in God's mystery and supernatural power. They like to take spiritual risks and wake up hoping that God is going to do something new and fresh in their lives today. Enthusiasts don't want to just know scriptural con concepts. They want to experience and be moved by them. And their exuberance tends to lead them to embrace things like dancing and music and drawing and singing and other creative forms of worship. And then there's the contemplative, marked by an emotional attachment and an ever-abandonment to God. They're God's lovers, right? Maybe you're all going, it's me. <laughs> God's lovers, right? They want to spend their time in God's presence and adorn him, listen to him, enjoying him. Then there's the naturalist. I think I already hit that one. Let's see. There's the intellectual. In this context, the intellectual doesn't necessarily mean smart, but rather a heart that is most often awakened when they understand new concepts about God. Their minds are very active. New intellectual understandings literally births affection. I think this, this is for me, right? When I read my books, I sit at home, and I'm just, I walk out of the, my, my study, and I tell Diane, I'm like, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. And she's like, Go back in your study. <laughs> Just, <laughs> you're scaring me. So, so we, we have all these, and I, and I think I hit all of them, and maybe you're a blend, right? And as you'll also notice, as you look at this list, like on the left side, there, there are some, they're, they're, they're more spiritual, kind of um, quieter, and then on the right are more active. And so what I want to say is, as you all took this, I'm sure you thought of people, maybe even your spouse and your kids and your mother and father, and like, oh, that's how come they're so weird. Or, you know, this is why they always want to do that. Like, I never understood. Like, this is the way they see and they feel God. So we have at least 15 different biblical metaphors for the church. We have at least nine different ideas on how to do church the best. Right? So, so where do we stand now as a church? Where do, where do we get the unity that Christ prayed for? Like in the book of John, right? Read John's gospel, and he spends right about three, two, two, three chapters right there, and he's just praying for the believers and all future believers because he knows 
that this idea of church where we all gather from all different walks of life, from all different experiences, from all economic levels, from all uh, everything, and we gather in one room. He's like, how in the world are they going to get along? They're gonna, it's going to be a riot. But he had a plan. My Holy Spirit will do it. Really, my Holy Spirit will bring all you weirdos together into one beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. So if you were to visit Nazarene churches across the world today, right, you would see all these biblical metaphors played out. You see some churches really leaning into the body, some churches really leaning into the bride of Christ, some churches really leaning into the olive branch and the olive tree, and right? You'll, you'll see all different expressions in the church of the Nazarene. Those are all great. And you're also going to see if you go to a Bible study, if you go to a Bible study in Kansas City or Karachi, right, you're going to experience all these different people, and you're going to, where in the world did they get that answer? Well, they're an aesthetic or, or they're a caregiver, or they're a, a naturalist. Or, and then you kind of begin to appreciate where they're coming from. Um, so again, given all this diversity, where do we find the unity? Well, the Church of Nazarene, I'm very happy to say, we have arrived, check this out, three words. Out of all of this, the Nazarene Church believes that if we could focus on three words... That no matter how different we are, how crazily different our opinions are, we could actually come together and have incredible unity. Let me tell you about these three words. This is from our Nazarene church. You can check this out on our, our uh, website and, and all that. Core values of the church of Nazarene. Number one, we are a Christian people, right? We are a people who believe in the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? The Trinitarian creeds of the church. Um, we also believe that uh, we, we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourself. Um, this is incredibly, incredibly important. So we are a Christian people. We gather and we, we do the things that all churches who believe in the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, that's what we're a part of, the church Catholic. Um, we're also, hit that next slide there, we're also a holiness people. Right, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, have the same mindset as Christ, right? Who even though he had all of these divine attributes and everything, he spent all of his time self-giving, self-emptying, this idea of kenosis. Have a mindset like Jesus where you just give of yourself, and that's what you do. You just give of yourself, and you give of yourself, and you give of yourself. And when you think that you're going to be empty, at the end of the day, he fills you to the point where you're overflowing, and you can't help but continue to give of yourself. It's like it feeds on itself. The more you give, the more he gives, and the more you want to give. And it's just an amazing, amazing cycle up. Now, this whole idea of this holiness, we are a holiness church also. Again, this is so crucial. We... We are an optimistic grace, right? There is an idea out there that uh, we are so bad that Christ just kind of looks the other way when he looks at us. He imputes righteousness, which means he pretends that we're righteous. John Wesley didn't believe that. As we read Scripture, same with John Wesley, he read Scripture and he said, wow, um, no, we're not, we are a total wreck, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are made holy. We are made complete. We can actually expel original sin so that we want to please God, not expel all sin, but that, 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 that inbred, inborn tendency to want to please self more than you want to please God. We believe in a second act of grace that wipes that idea out and to the point where you actually want to please God. You don't have to. 
but you actually want to. And it's, it's an amazing gift. So we are a holiness people. And I saw something this week. Dan sent it to me. This is what a holiness church looks like. Most churches, they have what's called pseudo-community. Right? Everybody, it's kind of like when you first started dating, right? You, you didn't pick your ear, right? Kept, kept, kept your finger out of your nose, right? You didn't make any gross noises. But after a year or two, right? Right? Now, my guess is the first time you saw your wife... Okay, let's choose a different story. The first time you saw something different in your household, right? Chaos. You're like, what? Right? So at that time pseudo-community becomes real community, right? And every married couple passes through pseudo-community, and they make their way finally to real community. And in the middle, there's what's called chaos. <laughs> chaos, when you recognize that they don't do things the way you do things, right? So after a while, pseudo-community, pseudo even in a church, it just doesn't work anymore. You get tired of being polite. You get tired of hiding the real self. And then you throw out an opinion one day in Sunday school, and what happens? Chaos. Everybody flips out because now pseudo-community has been threatened. You can't be polite when someone just goes out and says what they think. Like, like she has a little brother who would, when their parents fought, they would tell John, shut up, John would never have a clue. What's going on? Same, same exact situation. So in this pseudo-community, somebody eventually says, here's actually how I feel. And this is where a holiness people step in. And they embrace that difference. They self-give. They self-empty. Just like Christ did in the second chapter of Philippians. And this is when the chaos comes back to authentic community of a holy people who accept each other, how they're radically different, even gross. <laughs> That's all good and fine because we're all loved dearly by God and God saved you. So you ought to let him save other people too. Because if he saved you, you know. Yeah, he needs to save other people too. So we are a holiness people, but we're also the third thing. We are a missional people. We are a missional people. We have kind of four areas that this missional kind of thing plays out. We are missional in the way we worship, right? John Wesley said, a church that worships properly, they, they, uh, they worship properly, they preach the word rightly, and they practice the sacraments Correctly, I think that was the three. That is what we do here at the Church of the Nazarene. Um, our, our, one of our missions is that we worship properly. Um, another mission that we have is, is evangelism and compassion, right? We believe in the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. We believe that we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. Therefore, we go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Makes sense. So we are a great commission and a great commandment church. Uh, we're, we're missional. Another area, we have higher education. That is a, a very important mission for the Church of Nazarene is, is our higher education, um, our colleges. And then finally, we have discipleship. We are a church that doesn't just have a worship service and says good luck. We pull you back. We encourage you to join a small group or a Sunday school class or, you know, an online gathering or something where you can be accountable, right? You can help somebody else be accountable and they can help you be accountable. Iron sharpens iron. That's what the disciple process. A lot of denominations of discipleship is not an important deal. For us, it is. It's huge. It's one of our missions. So I want to introduce you right now to our new mission statement, our church board. We met. Uh, we put together a committee. They, for several months, they met a whole bunch of times. They argued, and, and it, 
it didn't get tense, but, but we really worked on the, this idea. And, and this is our new mission statement. Would you please write there? The mission of the church and church of the Nazarene is to make Christ-like disciples in the tri-cities. And what I want to very quickly point out is all three core values are distinctly made in this mission statement. For example, first, we are a Christian people. And you'll see in that mission statement, hit that next slide there, to make Christ-like disciples, that's what Christian churches do, right? We are a, a Christian church, therefore, we make disciples, right? But we're also a holiness people. Hit that next slide there. That term Christ-like, you will not see that term in other denominations because they don't believe that you can become Christ-like. We do. We believe by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can become Christ-like. And that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing goal to stretch for. And then finally, we are a missional people, and we see that in the Tri-Cities, and we wrote that. We weren't sure. We know a lot of you don't live in Richland. We are the Richland. We don't want to take away from Pasco Church of Nazarene or, you know, Kennewick or Story Point, but, but all four of our churches here and out in Benton City, we're all kind of Tri-Cities. Well, now what is it, like six cities? <laughs> Tri-Cities. So I want you to be thinking about and praying about this, this mission statement. And by the way, last week, I so desperately wanted to introduce this because before we started any of this, I sat down with um, Janine and Ed, and I said, I, I, I see you have a mission statement in the hallway, right down that hallway. And would it be okay, Janine, if we... She gave me her blessing, and she's like, if you don't, Jerry, you're not a good pastor, basically, right? You need to give your church a, a vision, right, of where they want to go. So this has been blessed by Pastor Janine, just to let you all know. So uh, in closing, um, I'd like to quote John Wesley. Um, what if people don't agree with all three points? What if you meet a neighbor, you go down the street, right, Malik, and you meet your neighbor, and he's like, what? I don't believe in that silliness. I like what John Wesley says. This is his way of determining a true believer. He wrote this. Whoever they are that have one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one God, and Father of all, I can easily bear with their holding wrong opinions. <laughs> I love that. That's like, that. I want that on my um, tombstone, I think, right? So again, and now I just want to close from where he got this. This is again from Ephesians chapter 4. And just, just let me read this, and we're going to share communion together. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1, going through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Just bow your heads and just a prayer of closing, but also to prepare your hearts for communion. Um, it's not in this passage, but there's actually one communion, too, in the Christian church, the church universal. All over the world today, right about right now, people are pulling out communion elements. This is the church we're a part of. This is not something that we do here in Richland. This is around the world. So, fathers, we prepare to participate in, in maybe one of the greatest mysteries in your word, Father. Uh, what exactly happened 
We believe that you've told us everything that we need to know, but I have a distinct impression that there's a whole lot more going on that we are going to be forever amazed of. So, Father, this morning as we, as we share in a thing of unity, Father, please, we, th- this is our effort to be one where we, even when we recognize that we're not one, we're, we're many, It's like the parts of the body are many, but when they gather, they're powerful. Father, thank you for everything that you did for us, that you continue to do for us, and that you'll never stop doing for us until our faith is complete and we see you face to face. And then it just gets better. (laughs) The great adventure. Father, thank you for your son, whom we now celebrate. Receive our worship, Father, for your son, whom you said to lift up his name. In his name I pray, amen.